0: Coming up on Inside the Box, hi the old folks, farmers and good old boys. It's the rural purge of 1970. In a move that is said to have canceled every show with a tree in it, CBS forever changed the television landscape, or did it? We investigate the events that led to the axing of rural shows such as the Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, and Mayberry RFD, among others, in favor of ushering in a more socially aware All in the Family, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and M.A.S.H., So rev up your chainsaws as we go inside the box.
1: As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. You got spunk. You are a meathead. Good evening, everybody. Ayyy. This is CBS. Bang, zoom. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Hi, Corumba. That's the way it is. Hey, it looks like it's a spot for all of us in a show. The following program is brought to you in living color. Oh, yeah. oh yeah!
0: Now I remember. Welcome to Inside the Box. I am Steve Vories along with Andrew Silvati. How you doing, Steve? Good. How are you, Andrew? Great.
1: And everyone's favorite Jonathan mm-hmm. Bollinger. That's too kind of you, Steve. Thank you. Um, I'm ready to uh, I'm ready to be purged. I hear they call you Alabama John. Uh, that's because I drink Alabama Slammas.
2: Oh, okay, yeah. fair enough.
1: And he's thinking of leaving the world of Academia to raise a farm. Is that yep, uh, the farming life's the good life. Is the life for me? What has the green acres?
2: Uh, yeah, something something like that. Oliver Wendell Douglas, right? At is, the end
1: of this episode, we will sing the song together.
0: Yeah, I have to look up the lyrics. So what we're talking about today is the rural purge of 1970. So um, in a very basic overview, CBS that year of 1970 had several um, top 20 shows, the Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, uh, Mayberry RFD, which was a continuation of the Andy Griffith show. And what happened in one fell swoop is that uh, uh, all these shows were canceled. And it's sort of an amazing uh, change that the television landscape entered into more of urban, socially aware times, running sitcoms like All in the Family. And MASH had more political undertones to it. And so today what I'd like to talk about is uh, was this purge really a one-time um, occurrence? And um, and really who were the players behind making these decisions at CBS uh, to just cancel top 20 shows uh, that were getting very healthy Nielsen ratings and were still bringing in advertisers? So uh, some of the ideas behind this and um, and if this was really the only purge that ever happened or if there were other events that led up to it. da 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 So I guess where I'd like to start is sort of this great man in history approach because um, at CBS uh, Robert wood was the uh, was the president at the time that the purge happened and um, he worked with Michael Dan who was head of programming and had said we're gonna we're gonna kill all these shows and Michael Dan was very much against it and uh, so who do uh, you know he ends up leaving the network and who do they bring in but who was be- beneath Michael Dan and that is uh, the famous Fred Fred uh, Silverman. That's right. Fred. So they bring in the famous Fred Silverman. Uh, Silverman would go on to really become an icon in all three networks, bringing them all up to very popular uh, programming ratings and very successful times. After CBS, Silverman would go to ABC and become their president of programming and did phenomenal things with that network. But he's young here. He comes up, and Robert Wood says, "We're gonna we're gonna cancel all of these shows," and they and they do so. So. Um, Many writings about this, many articles that you'll read, sort of takes this great man-in-history approach, that it was Robert Wood who wisely cut all of these shows down in their prime and brought us Mary Tyler Moore, All in the Family, these shows that suddenly shot up to number one and were much more successful than the rural shows, so it looks like a stroke of genius. But Andrew, being a historian – you know, what are some of the traps that we can fall into if we just look at the great man approach?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great thing to talk about, particularly in the broader context of what we're hoping to do with this, this, this podcast, right? Um, so this kind of great man theory of history, what they call, is traditionally opposed to what they call trends and forces, right? So it's either uh, the great personages on one hand, uh, it doesn't have to be a, a guy, it can be a great woman of history too, a uh, great person of history um, are the prime drivers of uh, politically and socially relevant events versus a perspective that kind of takes uh, a uh, a trends and forces perspective, which um, looks to uh, reconfigurations of social life and culture as the prime driver of of history and of change. Um, So... What I think Steve wants to do in this podcast, and Steve, you can stop me if I'm wrong, is kind of oppose this uh, what they call orthodox uh, reading of history uh, based upon uh, personalities like Paul Klein, Michael Dan, uh, Robert Wood and and Silverman um, with one that kind of uh, questions uh How much impact these people actually had now not 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 to downplay what they did at all, but to kind of situate uh these individual actions within a larger uh historical um, and cultural context um so that kind of that kind of plays into what we want to do with this podcast, thinking about television technology in particular if you uh remember in one of our earlier and a few of our earlier podcasts we've kind of talked about how we're not really interested in looking at at television uh, or any of the associated technologies we're talking about um, as kind of bundles of effects, right? As autonomous technologies that once loosed upon the world uh, are uh, particularly or singularly responsible for the changes of history. But um, technologies and even, you know, individuals in in, in the context we're talking about today um, are set within a broader framework. And I think uh, we're going to get to the bottom of that today and kind of rethink the uh, the rural purge um, as less of a great man and more of a, uh, a trends and forces, actually.
0: Absolutely. It, it happened, right? So this decision was made. We're not denying that it didn't happen, but I think we can't look at it in a vacuum, that we right. have to look at everything that led up to it. And there, again, TV research was changing at the time. You have to look at what your competition is doing sure. and what maybe led to this decision because it's not every day you just start chopping top 20 programs that are getting healthy ratings, just chopping them down, right? right? right. And taking risks on shows we know all in the family today. But back then, that was a huge risk, right? That you don't right. think the show's going right. to work. And um, and there's other um, other shows like the Storefront Lawyers that were equally urban and trying to be more socially aware, and they died after just a handful of
2: episodes. Sure. So I think really what we're doing is we're actually splitting the difference between the great man and then the trends and forces thing, which is, you know, might be a little unsettling because it doesn't tie everything up in a nice little package like, you know, the great man or focusing on effects does. Uh, But at the same time, it allows us to take a more critical perspective um, and a perspective that that kind of sees these things as a little complex and a little messy, uh, no matter how unsettling that may be.
0: And I think the messy part, Jonathan, you probably could come in here. It's that they cut down their rural shows, but they didn't cut down all their rural shows. It seemed to be as though they picked and choose, chose, chose, yeah, chose. yeah uh, certain ones, and um,
1: yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the famous example is uh, Gunsmoke. Uh, Gunsmoke lasted till seventy-five. That's the it's the classic show that last and i i you correct me if i'm wrong but i think it's the only you know one hour drama ish show that lasted 20 seasons you know 55 mm-hmm. to 75 but as some of our research that we were looking at today you know points out is that while when we say rural purge what we're really thinking about we are thinking about mayberry rfd and green acres and um uh, uh so these other lassie shows, lassie um <laughs> But you know the, the 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 westerns or some of the westerns that were still around were were considered part of that. And and surprisingly, I guess I either forgot this or I just never knew this. But Gunsmoke actually was going to get the axe after twelve seasons, and then they realized, as this is just speaking to Steve's point, they went, "Well, hold on a second. We'll keep this one around. This seems to work." And that's why it ends up it ends up going till seventy five. But, um, yeah, so it it is a bit of sort of having their cake and eat it, too. And this will be a theme that I'll I'll talk about if we get into this messiness uh, element of it, is it's also a messiness that comes right back around, not only in the late 70s, but basically since around, I'd say, late 90s, early 2000s, if we're talking about CBS. Because CBS's latest slogan that they consistently use is the most-watched network. And they Mm. are not looking for just young urban uh, demographic 18 to 49 they'd like that but they're also trying to hit everybody so it's kind of a, a a funny way to look at it is that we are we are talking about the rural purge and how that it was significant and they certainly made it significant especially if we pin it on great men of history as those moving the world forward but they pretty much just go right back to the old strategy uh, eventually anyway so it's just, it's just kind of silly in that in the from that perspective
2: Right, and and rural, I think, is almost misleading a little bit too, um, Steve. You know, um, it wasn't just the Green Acres and the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, it was Hogan's Heroes, right? I mean, it was uh, Lawrence Welk Show, which my grandmother loved.
1: <laughs> There's a little hotel called the Shady Rest at the junction. Junction. It is run by Kate. Come and be her guest at the junction. Petticoat Junction. And that circle Joe, he's a-moving kind of slow at the junction. Petticoat Junction.
0: So one of the players that I think we need to introduce here is CBS's competition. It was their main competition at the time, NBC. ABC's The Younger Network, they made it very clear that not only are they the younger network, but they're going after the younger demographic, right? Um, And at the time, NBC and CBS made it clear that they were going after the total audience. We're talking a mass audience. Uh, There are no demographics at this point, at least this is what most of the readings will say, although uh, Mark Alvey uh, certainly proves otherwise, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But NBC is in tight competition with CBS, and the turning point right before 1970, which may have led to this purge, was that CBS had won the ratings year, I believe, for 1969 by about .2 ratings points above NBC as the, their overall general rating for average for that season. Yeah, they
2: carried the moon landing that year, too, right? Or I'm was sorry? That, that was – Oh, the all moon landing. Of the, that oh, all, all the, all the, all the okay.
1: networks did, I believe. Yeah, they, they all co- – they all cooperated and uh, and and worked on together to do that, but then immediately once that was over, they went back to sort of fighting it okay. out.
0: But uh, so at NBC, there is a gentleman, Paul Klein. He is the head researcher, and he has to figure a way uh, to make NBC uh, look like it won. And the way he does this is he says, "CBS, you may have won the mass audience, but NBC crushed you in that target demographic. Those young." intelligent viewers who have money and can buy products in that 18 to 49 range and this had not been done in television before to start looking at demographics Uh, and so he sort of goes on this campaign and it was enough I think to sway Robert Wood's decision that you know this might be the audience that advertisers want because who's watching the rural shows it was sort of deemed it was old ladies it was um, people who did not have uh, much education. It was people who did not have the money to be buying products. They weren't very affluent. And uh, and the shows didn't really come off in a way that you would think would be um, – uh, it didn't make you think. It was programming that, that you, you didn't have to think much about watching the Beverly Hillbillies. So NBC really jabbed CBS with these types of comments, and I, I think it was enough to probably sway Robert Wood's decision because – they end up making a huge sweeping change in 1970. But, but Paul Klein and his role in this, I really think he has to make NBC look like the winner, and it's that propaganda that, that he puts out there. What Mark Alvey does really well is, is show that um, NBC pick, basically pick and chose when they would use this propaganda because if NBC had a show that was ranked really high in the mass audience – they would just say we're the most you know the show is the most watched by the audience this night if they had a show that lost it was well the show uh was number one in its demographic rather than overall audience right so it's a bit of spin that klein is putting on this and uh, i think that was enough to influence robert wood
1: yeah and, and i just some thoughts you you, you kind of triggered in me as a couple things it's just the other of course and a silly irony of this is that uh, not wanting to market to old ladies and kids, which is the phrase, is of course the exact opposite, at least for kids as concerned, of today. We market to kids directly. Right now, if I'm going to sell a minivan to you, I'm not going to sell it to you, I'm going to sell it to the kid, and then the kid's going to bug the crap out of you because they've seen it a million times on Hulu or whatever, and then they're part of the buying decision, uh, both because they influence the parent, but parent, but they also have their own level at a certain age of disposable income uh much more than than back then. So it's kind of again it almost seems quaint back then where they're like, "Oh my god, you know, we're the top-rated show, but kids all watch it." It's like, "Well, that's right, great, right. you know, I'd love to have that."
0: Well, let's talk a little bit more about Klein. So Klein and putting this pressure on CBS, he is I don't want to say a disciple of Marshall McLuhan, but he certainly is friends with him and um buys into a lot of McLuhan's theories. And and so it's sort of weird here that you have the academic world uh, colliding with the uh corporate world. And what Paul Klein does in his research is he really focuses on the medium is the message. And so this idea that it's not necessarily the content that we're watching, but it's the the medium is what people want. They're going to sit in front of the TV and watch something. It's just a matter of what that something is. But no matter what, they're going to be sitting in front of the TV set. So he comes up with this LOP theory, the least objectionable program theory, and that states that uh, viewers will watch the device – but they're going to look for whatever is the least objectionable to their tastes. Um, and in that they're not going to read a book. They're not going to go outside. They're going to sit in front of the TV. So it doesn't matter what you put on. They'll always go to the least objectionable. All right. So with this least objectionable program theory, you know, what Klein is trying to come up with is is really to explain why CBS has such a big audience and NBC doesn't. And, Jonathan, you have a great way of sort of putting this into yeah, perspective. Yeah, just,
1: just- – Klein's L.O.P. is that and again he's influenced by McLuhan who's saying the medium is the message as as Steve's been talking about which is the format is as important as the content and one of the one of the way that the format of TV works in a more technical sense uh, is it sits there in your living room and what Klein was theorizing is that with L.O.P. is a person sits down they look through a physical TV guide remember we're talking about the 1960s and they look for something to watch if they don't find what they want to watch, it's not as though they then stand right back up and go do another activity. What they actually do is they would get up, they would turn the TV on and flip through the limited number of di- uh, channels on the on the physical dial. And if they're watching with other people, ultimately no none of them are satisfied with the program choice that ultimately is, is stopped at or, or watched. It's more of a compromise decision amongst all of them and none of them are satisfied. It is literally the choice is the least objection, objectionable uh, program, and so if we then, and I'll throw this back to Steve. If we then extrapolate that out to this idea of sort of of sort of ratings, then it ultimately means
0: that the broadest audience is is a fraud because the Andy Griffith Show, Green Acres, any of these programs, Lassie, who who has anyone does anyone have a controversial problem with Lassie? Probably not. And and so the idea is the mass audience, most of them are just going to land on something that's least objectionable that everyone in the household can watch. And so CBS's ratings, is what Klein is saying, is that they were they were fraudulent. These were just people who really did were not satisfied by this programming but just landing on these channels. And it was the young demo of the 18 to 49-year-olds, um, the affluent educated who were actually choosing or selecting programs to watch or then not watching anything at all. So I think that's what he was trying to prove with NBC's Um, more upscale programming he was trying to sell, saying, look, we're not getting the the biggest ratings, but we're getting the most useful ratings in terms of attracting advertising dollars.
2: But even still, as you know, Alvy says that there's a little bit of a fraudulence to that, too, right? I mean, Sure. We 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 talked about Star Trek in on this podcast, and that would have been one of the exceptions, right? Uh, Star Trek uh, TOS, uh, the original series, as as fans uh, call it, but that was what sixty seven to sixty nine, um, so that was right before. Um, th- this moment and, and Star Trek, of course, had you know its its reputation was that it was um, you know very low rated, but it had you know that key uh, affluent uh, male educated audience that the networks ostensibly wanted to court, uh, but at the same time it was cancelled after after three seasons. So you know, kind of getting back to this idea of complexity, um, you know, the, the 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 framework that that Klein and others kind of give at, at this time about you know going from how many to what kind, uh isn't exactly what it seems. Yeah. Yeah. And and and, and Alvy talking about this, so he, he mentions the Star Trek
1: example as you're just talking about, and then he counters that with I'd never heard of this show called The Rogues. It was a family of aristocratic jewel thieves headed by Charles Boyer and David Niven. Uh it de- delivered a quality audience but it did not did not rate well enough to avoid cancellation. Right. So that'd be the counter. And then the one that really made me laugh and, and brings out the title of his article is Tarzan uh, that was actually dropped, even though it had an acceptable home rating. Uh, but in Klein's words, "quote It had been deli- it hadn't been delivering the right kind of people. Too many kids and old ladies." Um, now today, especially with Disney's version of that, I mean, you would market the hell out of that show, even if it isn't the greatest show in the world. It'd be keychains right, and this and right. that, and video games and McDonald's ties in, and Hulu. This and you know, it would it would still be milked for value. Mm-hmm. I think we see almost a sort of double standard here because.
0: Uh, according to the previous research, and you look at Variety Magazine, I know Alvi goes through a lot of these NBC reports. Shows that had great ratings for overall audiences were always left on the air. Shows that didn't get great overall ratings, they used what they called the gray belt, looking at that 18 to 49 or 21 to 35 demo to say, do we have enough of the upper class smart audience of this young demo? Um, and if so, maybe the show can stay on the air. We can rationalize that the show will stay on the air, even with a low, general, broad audience, which I think Star Trek falls into that category. Uh, however, if 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 um, it didn't deliver a large enough audience on a regular basis, kind of like Star Trek, it was almost as if that gray belt didn't matter at all because after three years, they still ended up canceling Right. Yeah, Trek, Alvia has so.
2: that, that great line that, you know, d- despite... Claims to the contrary, no advertiser wanted to be associated with a you know bottom third uh, program at all. just just wasn 't going to happen right, no matter how you spin it right? right
0: so what I think is real interesting here is nBC uh, released a um, magazine, I guess you could say, or uh, a statistical report. It was called nBC reports, and this would be released to the uh, advertisers and for marketing purposes. And it was really rhetoric that, according to Alvy, really served as more of a self-defense mechanism for Paul Klein than any kind of useful statistics, meaning that if NBC had a top-rated show in the general audience, they, they went with it. If they had a show that was in third place behind CBS and ABC, well, then they started playing up the numbers of the young demo and the importance of – Of this, So either way, NBC won. It's a win-win situation. You're either winning in the general audience or you're winning in your upper upper class audience because the other networks are not doing this yet. The thing about it, we go back to that great man trap we can fall in. NBC was doing this in 1953, even before Paul Klein, 10 years before Paul Klein even arrived. Um, And so there were hints of this quality demo for advertisers that networks – um, weren't really catching on to, but it was always under the surface sort of. And certain shows were using this, uh, I guess, to survive. You didn't want to be canceled. You you started looking at any part of the demographics of watching your show uh, just to keep your show on the air. And so this was something that, that Paul Klein can't even take credit for. It was there when he arrived. Right. So when Paul Klein arrived in, in the early 60s and started playing up more of this uh, specialized audience for advertisers – CBS actually reacts to it with an initial purge. Uh, Four years before the rural purge, CBS in 1966-67 decided to purge uh, four television shows, What's My Line, I've Got a Secret, To Tell the Truth, and Candid Camera. As Jonathan mentioned earlier, there was a fifth show, Gunsmoke, that was originally purged as well, and this was Michael Dan doing the purge, the same Michael Dan that refused to do the rural purge in 1970 and was replaced by Silverman. So Dan had already gone through this, and this is before Robert Wood was even there. So Dan's acting uh, with Frank Stanton on this uh, over at CBS. The idea of making this first purge was all because of age, that they were afraid that major sponsors were shifting. They saw a shift in the industry that major sponsors are shifting their advertising dollars to shows that skewed younger. You have the monkeys on NBC right now. And that was getting a lot of advertising attention, uh, as well as other programs. And so CBS says, "Well, you know what? We gotta we gotta start getting rid of these older slanting shows and look at maybe more shows with a um, with a younger audience appeal to it." So those game shows are gone. Gunsmoke does survive; it comes back after the decision to to cancel it was originally there. But you can see that that CBS is already thinking about this. And what I think is really ironic is that CBS replaced. Those shows, uh, with a couple of uh, a couple of urban upper scale type of audience programs called *He and She* and *Good Morning World*, and they were both canceled. They didn't last very long. Uh, a third show that came out of that first purge was *The Smothers Brothers*, very mm-hmm. controversial political type of. Uh, left-leaning show that, that does survive for a couple years before CBS cancels it. Um, and it was popular when it was canceled. It was, I think, more or less the content matter that was making CBS nervous.
2: Yeah, we it. could probably do an entire episode Absolutely. on that show. It might be it might be interesting. We'll bookmark that for later, maybe. Absolutely.
0: But w- where you see the success of Mash Null, and All in the Family, you look back at 66, 67, and you see these shows, He and She... Good morning world, and we don't know these today. Right. Because they just didn't last. And and so it was almost a failed attempt to get into that urban the first time in
2: 66-67. Gomer Pyle, USMC.
1: Starring Jim Neighbors as Gomer
2: Pyle. Also starring Frank Sutton as Sergeant Carter.
1: So if we're talking about this sort of rural purge of the early 70s, which we've sort of dated from, I don't know, 70, 71 to about 75. What what gets interesting is that and we're in no way minimizing the impact and positive impact at that of the new shows that were entered into. I think we needed at that time and we, we should have to provide alternative perspectives and. More multiple perspectives of the sort of American experience, i.e., you know, MASH, All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore, et cetera. But what's interesting is we then get this new fandom of mid to late 70s into a different type of – I don't know if I want to say it's rural culture as much as it's perhaps just uh, sort of associated with southern culture in that we have um, we have this new form of outlaw country music, which is hugely popular – um, and we have our sort of our big four, which, of course, I'll probably blank on. But it's what uh, Willie, Meryl, uh, Johnny, maybe. And uh, uh, oh, I can't think of the fourth guy of Outlaw Country. But anyway, so th- this is huge. Then we get from that into some novelty stuff. We get like a Convoy and CB talk and uh, Trucker movies. We have like Smokey and the Bandit. And then that gets into television, right? BJ and the bear and all this sort of, you know, sort of lauding sort of this good old boy sort of culture. And then we get going back to CBS, big, big hit from 79. Well, I'll say the big hit were from 79 to about 82. And then it but it lasted till 85 is Dukes of Hazard, right? And this is based on a, a movie which the uh, producer, I guess, uh, wrote, and it's basically the same thing. It's just one is a movie and one's a TV show called, I think it's like Moonshiners or Moonrunners or something like that from 75. And um, so it's just funny to me that, you know, only – 8 years later or whatever totally embracing totally embracing sort of a southern or rural or at least depictions of not urban not affluent not white right. in order to or in order to sell uh sell these uh
2: shows and to And this was the time of muscle cars too which probably figured into the popularity of something yeah, like Yeah 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 I mean muscle hazard
1: yeah, I mean, muscle cars for sure, it's late 60s, early 70s, but then you still have, I mean, if we're really talking like che- cheesy, uh, cheesy leads in, in TV shows at that time, you know, uh, Chip, the guys on Chips drove like Trans Ams and, you know, everyone drove like a, a kind of a muscly car.
2: But and, um, uh it's interesting to note, uh NASCAR, I think, started uh national television, I forget on what network in 1978, too. So that's, that's a great that's yeah, a great point. Yeah. yeah.
1: So so you really have this sort of groundswell again, and CBS is is, is right there with it. Um, now, it that I am not saying that to say, oh, well then well, there was no point in having this purge. I think there was a very significant uh, contribution to having the purge or at least perhaps maybe keeping a few of those shows while also introducing the new ones. Although they make a point that having that sort of dichotomy between the two types might've been a little too jarring, but, um, but it was just interesting to me that we, eventually the same network is, is in the midst of, of this second, uh, surge really. And then ultimately, and I, I mentioned this, uh, earlier in the, in the episode, is you now have, since I think it's probably from like maybe 1998 or 1999, is CBS's slogan is, the most watched television network. And you see that, they'll say that as a slogan, they'll also do most watched drama, most watched comedy, number one this, number one that. And they're counting everybody. And it's not that they're not interested in the 18 to 49, but they want to count everyone. And it's just, it's kind of funny that they, in almost admittedly a now fractured media landscape, They've kind of gone back to the old strategy, in a sense, uh, that we were talking about them turning away from uh, in 70, 71. So, um, but can can I argue that Absolutely me? not. No. Yeah, go for it.
0: <laughs> he always shuts me down. Yeah. Um, what I would argue about that, though, the most watched network, I would say that that's not what they believe in. I think that's the way the numbers work down and what they're trying to tell America. Because if you tell America, we're the most watched 18 to 49-year-old demo, America's not going to care. But... America's most watched network is a slogan that's more of a marketing ploy for the common viewer to to say, "Hey, I'm I'm part of the I'm part of the audience that watches CBS." Than, yeah. than to have something that they actually believe. In.
1: I I guess, but I mean, I also read it as like, you know, look, you run sixty minutes, you run every CSI and NCI, whatever, and and I'm sorry, maybe I'm wrong with this. Maybe every seventeen year old in the country watches. I don't believe that. I think it's like fifty and over. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, they they're the ones who went back to like charlie rose as their serious news morning show i mean i just feel like that slogan is to sort of subtly hide. and david sorry i like dave letterman but you know dave letterman's the last of the of his generation in the late night uh and even craig i love craig ferguson i watch craig ferguson all the time but he's you know not necessarily the youngest hippest guy in the world so i just think it's a way to sort of hide like oh hey we're actually quite an old network which i don't personally have any issues with god love him for sort of you know skewing toward that but other than and even i don't even know if big bang theory is like hip or like with the young people yeah, very much so i i, I guess uh, but i'm saying it, it, it
0: scores the big bang theory scores better ratings than thursday night football in 18 to 49 demo yeah
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> okay well uh so okay so maybe that but i was gonna i was trying to look for the counter argument so maybe that <laughs> maybe that maybe two and a half men and whatever but i'm just saying that like when i think cbs i do not think i mean maybe back in the day survivor was the young thing but that's not the young thing now i mean that shows 17 years old or whatever it is uh so it's just interesting to me that cbs the quote-unquote tiffany network is still very much feels very like an old network even though they say most watched most this most that but I don't, they're not talking necessarily yeah, no, about I'm, young I'm, I'm
2: a little bit surprised by the big bang theory uh, numbers that you've just cited, uh, Steve. I mean, I, I, I watch it at home, but I don't know the the way in which, quote unquote, geek culture uh, and youth culture is represented in that show. It seems really much to me like, you know, it's it's framed for an older audience. Uh, to kind of understand that culture, um, and, and I don't, I don't, I'm not
1: denying its popularity. I mean, that show, that uh, yeah, that, yeah, it's Chuck Laurie
2: show, Laurie show, are like
1: the last of the old time sitcoms that just bring in gobs of money, and everyone's fabulously mm-hmm. wealthy from being on this show. But again, I just don't think of it as a particularly young, hip show, even though right. it is younger, and especially because it's now been on like whatever it's been on seven years, eight years, or something. Yeah. Um, so just interesting as as. It, it It just seems like we're c b s is very much what it was back in the day as far as strategy before the purge, and seemingly a little bit after it
0: I mean if anything the purge the purge drew people's attention to demographic breakdowns though so the very conversation we're having right now could be attributed back to that world purge because that's when people that's when big decisions i guess sixty six sixty seven 67, were were the beginning of it, but those two purges is when decisions start really becoming. Uh, apparent that the demographic breakdown of audiences for television was important when before it might have been there, but there wasn't much action taken mm-hmm. um, this outwardly. You yeah, know, you, can, you could
2: kind of almost read this as a, you know, not to not to reduce anything, it's more complex than that, but, right. you know, read this as a kind of trajectory that that becomes uh, niche broadcasting and and um, and narrowcasting, uh, as they call it later on.
1: Green Acres is the place is the light for me? Land spreading out so far and wide. Keep Manhattan, just give me that countryside.
0: New York is where I'd rather stay. I get allergic smelling hay. I just adore a penthouse view. Darling, I love you, but give me back. Well, uh, we're just about out of time now, so. Thank you for joining us for this exploration of the Royal Purge. We hope you've enjoyed uh, our discussion, and will join us again for another podcast. Till then, I'm Steve Voris, along with Andrew Silvati. And, Andrew, where can you find this podcast?
2: Oh, yeah. Don't forget to check us out on uh, our website, uh, tvhistorypod.com. Uh, uh, you can also find us on Twitter. Uh, the handle is at tvhistorypod. Uh, and we're also uh, on Facebook, so you can find us there, too. No excuse for not tracking us down and uh, making our lives miserable with all your comments And uh, corrections. We look forward to it. Yeah, we are everywhere. And uh, Jonathan, thanks for being here today as well. It was good to uh, stay
1: awake through this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) As we hope you have also (laughs) stayed awake through our discussion. We look forward to the next time you join us and we go inside the box.
1: As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. You've got
2: spunk. You are a meathead. Good morning, everybody. Welcome a.